Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Father, we, uh, we are grateful, Lord, for thy love. And uh, we understand, Lord, in our heads what your word tells us, that uh, while we were yet sinners, you loved us. And, and I think our hearts are increasingly understanding that reality, that while we were alienated from you, um, your heart was continued, uh, continued to remain moved, and you did move, that we might be in relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray that you would uh, enlarge all of our hearts this morning uh, with that knowledge. Lord, cause them to swell, uh, and we rejoice in you. Minister now to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, brother. Were you done? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> We are in, uh, <clears throat> having a little cough problem. We're in uh, Proverbs chapter 21 this morning. So please turn there if you could. We had ambitious goals last week uh, to make our way through uh, almost all of chapter 21. And we only ended up in verse 3 last week. So we'll get as far as we can as the Lord allows each, uh, each week moving through uh, this study. As I said, we left off in verse 4. I'll read it to you. It says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. Haughty eyes and a proud heart. Again, we come back to this idea in the book of Proverbs of pride. Pride, so destructive in our walks with Jesus, so destructive in this world in which we live. How many of the problems and the warrings that take place nationally, internationally, and also individually go back to this issue of pride. And Solomon again and again comes back to it in this study of how dangerous it is. The wise person recognizes the danger of it and the hold of it it can have on their hearts, and they keep themselves from it. And here he brings up this idea of the haughty eyes and the proud heart, that look, that look of arrogance. He says there in the ESV, the version I'm reading, the lamp of the wicked are sin. Now, the King James Version says it a little bit differently. It refers to it as the plowing of the wicked. So the plowing of the wicked and the lamp of the wicked, those are very different things. Like, what's going on here? How could there be such a disparity between those two? So translators have had a little bit of difficulty with it. The idea of the lamp is the idea of progeny or offspring. All right, so the lamp, I might refer to my son or my child in that particular way. The idea of the word plowing is connected with that which is being produced in in the, the farm and so on. And so offspring, production, you see the connection now, how they went in that particular direction here. And the idea then of the verse is that the only offspring, the only production of the proud or the arrogant is sin. And that's not good, right? We want to be people that are walking with the Lord. We know that we're going to sin. We know we're going to fall short. We know that our fleshly nature is going to rise up from time to time when we're not where we need to be, uh, kind of in that right place with the Lord. But we don't want to give ourselves to sin. We don't want to just say, "Ah, it is what it is. I'll deal with it or, or what have you. We want to keep ourselves from sin. We want to walk away from sin. And pride, if the only result is going to be sin, then it is that serious. And it is that destructive. Sin and pride... They taint everything the unrepentant man or woman does, and particularly the unrepentant, 
unbelieving man or woman, the one who has not yet come to Christ and recognized their very need for a Savior, so that even the good deeds that that person might do, their heart is still very, very far from the Lord. And again, it's become his, it is because of pride. As long as a person persists and their pride continues to remain in rebellion against God, there's no good thing they can do to make them right in the eyes of the Lord. Amen? Verse 5, it says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. And so the contrast between abundance and poverty. So here we have the sure way to be rich and the sure way to be poor, the way to abundance and the way to poverty. Here's the way to be rich. If you desire to live plentifully and comfortably in this world, then you must be a person that is diligent in your business and a person, as he said elsewhere in our study, that doesn't shy away from hard work. There you go. That's the track to get rich or to, to live in abundance. Be diligent in your labor and don't shy away from hard work. Again, he says here that the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. Now, in addition then, notice this speaks of the importance of not only working hard. So you want to work hard, certainly so here, but, and Solomon has emphasized that. But notice here he talks about you need to think hard as well. You need to plan. It says the plans of the diligent. So just as necessary as the hand of the diligent is, so is the head of the diligent. The person who plans and figures out and works hard, throws, if you will, forethought into an item. They plan, they process what does and does not work. And they assess, they study and prepare themselves for what their future might hold for them. All of those ideas, those are the things that are of a person that is successful. Now, he also presents to us the way to be poor. So for those of you here hoping someday, I hope I could be poor someday. That's my life goal. Listen up here. Solomon says, everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. To be hasty is to give no thoughts to your ways and your actions. It's to exercise no forethought and to do no planning. It's to be rash, to just jump into things at a moment's hope, uh, notice. Success doesn't just happen, and neither does failure. Success doesn't just happen, and neither does failure. Our lives are built on the small things that we do every day. And Solomon reminds us here, hard work, forethought, planning, industriousness, those are the things that lead a person or set a person up for success. Okay? Amen? amen. If I say okay, you can pretend I said amen. You can say, all right, I got it, I got it. Verse 6, it says, The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare. I have a little drinking problem <laughs> apparently here. The getting of treasures uh, by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Uh, Solomon shows us here what many people learn the hard way, and that is that the folly that hope to enrich themselves by dishonest practices, that doing so is really just folly. Now, to be sure, and you, you probably can think of it, you know, I know a lot of people that are uh, slime balls and they're cheats and they lie and they got a lot of money and they got a big bank account and they seem to be getting ahead in society. To be sure, many have acquired a great bit of treasure on this earth through dishonest means. There's no denying that, there's no doubting it. But those treasures, Solomon tells us here, will never be more than a fleeting vapor. 
as Solomon says in the verse here. Again, he says, the getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor. He also says they are a snare of death. You may gain it all in this world, but lose your soul. A fleeting vapor. Even if you live out 70, 80, 90 years here on the earth, and you've taken advantage of people, and you've schemed, and you've got ahead, and you gathered up all of these world treasures, and then you come to the end of your days, and you face eternal judgment because you never repented of your sin, it was a fleeting vapor. It was a snare of death. Those things, those wealth, those treasures will never bring a person the lasting peace and satisfaction that they were hoping they would bring them. And because we know the scripture says, for the person that loves money, money there will never be enough money. Amen? The person who loves money, they'll never have enough of it. Solomon says that. Ecclesiastes 5, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. If you love money, how much is enough money? Just a little bit more. I just need a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And you'll continually be striving, and you'll never discover that peace. And rather than discovering the satisfaction that they had anticipated, all of that wealth, all of that power, that authority, all those things that go with that, rather than experiencing the satisfaction they thought it would bring, instead it says they're met with destruction, a destruction that comes from dishonesty. And whether that is through suffering under a guilty conscience for their days, whether it's through this suffering, if you will, or this constant fear, is today the day I'm going to be caught for my sin? Is today the day that someone's going to discover that I've been rip, ripping them off? Or it is the eternal consequences of a life lived without God and contrary to God. However that destruction comes, the scripture says it will come. And that the path of destruction will far outweigh any satisfaction that was acquired or hoped to be acquired here on the earth. And the unspoken exhortation then of Solomon is this idea of if that's the way you're going to get your treasures, you're setting yourself up for destruction. Run after a treasure that will last into eternity. And that is a right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says, the violence of the wicked will sweep them away because they refuse to do what is just. A, a familiar concept we've seen in the Proverbs already here. And it's, again, it's this, that the Lord keeps record of right and wrongs, of rights and wrongs, as we see throughout the pages of Scripture and in our study of Proverbs. And we know that what a person sows is what a person is going to reap. And so the violence of the wicked will eventually turn on them and will sweep them away. Verse 8 says, the way of the guilty is crooked, but the conduct of the pure is upright. In my mind, I picture, and maybe you can with me, uh, and Kevin said it was supposed to snow this week or something uh, during announcements that, that, that's not true, and he's of the devil, if it does. Um, it better not. We're done with snow. Uh, don't say amen to that. But picture in your mind, if you will, two people that are checking through the snow. All right? And so you're way off ahead of them, or you're sitting on a hill or something there, and there's two people that are trekking through the snow. If you look back on where they've come from, you can see their path because their, their feet are leaving marks. And if you see a person that their, their footprints are essentially straight ahead, then you know that they're walking straight ahead. If you see the other footprints and they're sort of zigzagging around, then you know that person's having difficulty with their gait for one reason or another. They're distracted or they themselves have a difficulty that doesn't allow them to walk straight. So if the path is all over the place and zigzagging, that's a person that can't walk straight. You can see it by the path that they have formed. And if the path is straight ahead, that is a person who can walk straight. 
Now, to make the connection back, how do you know what sort of individual a person is? So you're interacting with someone, you're dealing with someone, you met that person perhaps for the first time. How do you know what sort of person that is? Look back over the track record of their lives. If the track record of their lives is winding and zigzagging, Solomon says, such is the way of a guilty or wicked individual. If, the, if it's upright or straight and proper, Solomon says, such is the way of a pure man. So you're considering a business part partnership, but you're not so sure of the character of the person you might strike an agreement with. What do you do? You look back over the track record that that person has already established. You see, are they zigzagging around and always in and out of trouble and, and so on and so forth. You're considering a personal relationship with another person. What do you do? You look back over the track record of that individual. Now, certainly people can change, especially when God's Holy Spirit begins to work in a person's life. People can change. But what is going to reveal that that change has really occurred? Time and this new track record they're establishing. And so perhaps in the distance past, distant past, you look back and it's zigzagging all over the place, but then it comes to a point where the line begins to straighten out and it begin moving forward. I can live with the zigzagging things if I'm gonna look for a relationship to get in with someone to be encouraged by and to encourage them or a business relationship type of thing, but there has to be a place where the line begins to straighten out here. And Solomon here, he's reminding us that you need to be very, very careful with the people you get in league with. And if a person is crooked, that's going to impact you in one way or another, and it may lead to your hurt and even perhaps your destruction. Verse 9, it's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. This needs a drink of water. <laughs> now, houses in Bible lands... Even today, kind of like many beach houses uh, here in New Jersey, they, they would have flat roofs or like we would have like a deck up on the roof or something like that. And so this idea of the husband here dwelling in the corner of a housetop, it, it's not necessarily that absurd. It's not like he's on a slanted roof hanging on for life or, or something like that, uh, though he might consider doing that. Um, but we have this idea of the flat roof, and, and here it says it's better to live in the corner of that flat roof in the corner of that housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. And the point here is that here is a man that rather than dwelling in the comforts of being inside the house, chooses instead to subject himself to the elements outside of the home. Now, why would anybody do that? Why would anybody leave the comforts of inside the house to expose themselves to the heat and the rain and the cold and all of those other things outside of the house. And Solomon tells us one of the reasons why somebody might do, that, might do that is because of a quarrelsome wife. Because of a quarrelsome wife. In this, in this man's estimation, the storms from without are more preferable than the storms from within. And so he takes off and he gets out of there. Now, the idea here, it, it certainly spells, or it points out, it's a quarrelsome wife. But essentially, this is any argumentative person. So people do this in their jobs. And you work nearby an argumentative individual that's next to you. It's annoying and it's frustrating. Look, man, I just came to do my job. I don't want to debate everything. I don't want to talk about everything. I don't want to get in an argument about everything. And eventually, what do people do? They go to their boss. They go to HR and they say, can you move me? to another place so I don't have to be near this particular guy anymore. So we're talking about an argumentative person here. And that could be a male or a female. Men, you could be argumentative. 
as well as the example here of the quarrelsome wife. And so I think there's a lesson then for all of us. There are people that just delight in fighting about things, about everything. Now, certainly there are things that are worth a discussion. There are things that we should talk about. You might call that an argument. I say, no, we're talking about it. There are things that need to be discussed and so on. But even in those things, you don't always have to have your way. We've convinced ourselves that if I don't get my way, somehow you won in this process here. You don't always have to get your way about certain things. And yet this quarrelsome individual, they have to. And so they're going to fight until you give in. Or they're going to continue to argue, or they're going to continue to push until finally you say, you know what, I don't even care anymore. Do whatever you want to do. I'm going and living up on the roof, uh, is how they end up here. <laughs> now, the Bible makes clear that such continual quarreling is a mark of worldliness. And it's a mark of us being ruled or reigned over by our flesh. And so in 1 Corinthians 3, it says, For you're still of the flesh, while there is jealousy and strife. Some versions translate it as quarreling. So while there is quarreling among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And so again, a male or a female can become this type of person. And it's not pleasing to the Lord. And it's taxing to those that are, you're interacting with. And so they take off and they leave. Now, earlier, Solomon referred to a wife's quarreling as a continual dripping. Apparently he had a problem with his wife or, or something, <laughs> or one of the many wives that he had here. And he refers to that quarreling as a continual dripping. A little bit later on in our chapter that we're studying today, he will say uh, that that quarreling is enough to drive a man to go and live in the desert. And so verse 19, he said, it's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman here. And what many do, some, they respond to the constant struggle in their marriage, for instance, by fighting back. And so you have the blow-ups, and you have the arguments, and the screaming, and the yelling. And that's how some respond to that here. But what many do, and many husbands do this, in, in the day and age in which we live, perhaps uh, in the past as well. But what many husbands do is like this guy, they respond by pulling away. And so the wife is trying to get her husband to become something. Again, it's not the job of one spouse to change the other spouse. We all agree with that, right? That's the Holy Spirit's job. And we've talked about that in the past here. But here's the one spouse trying to change the other one, always quarreling with the other one. You know, honey, I want you to take leadership in our home. Well, why'd you do it that way? You shouldn't have, didn't you think this should have been done this way? And all, you want me to lead or don't you want me to lead? I, this has nothing to do with relationships with my wife, okay? I'm just trying to put it into perspective here. But what many men will do, what I'm discovering about a lot of men is this, that if men don't have to lead in their homes, spiritually in particular, they won't. Fine, you want to do it, you do it. If it's going to be a fight, if it's going to struggle, I don't need to do it, you do it. And then what many men will do is if they're continually push and continually push, they'll just pull away. Some pull away altogether and they leave the relationship. But others, particularly Christian men, they, they have this recognition that marriage is a vow that they've made with God and with this woman, this other person here. So I'm not going to leave my marriage. I will not seek a divorce. But they essentially pull out of the marriage. And they go off and they, they're in their little man cave watching their TV all day where they're going and they're doing their sports or their activities or other things so that they don't have to be engaged in this particular home. And I don't think that's what the quarreling wife was hoping for. 
Again, the quarreling wife wanted to change her husband. Pull back and let God change your husband. There's a time to speak certain things into the relationship. Certainly so. We know that. And many men who are called to lead, however, they don't. And as I said, some don't. I didn't say this, but some don't because they're just schmoes. Men, it's time for you to, to step up and to lead your home. Some men are lazy. But some don't because they just feel like, you know what, I don't have, I don't have the fight within me to do it. And so they don't. Constant struggle. When a quarreling woman seeks to rule the home, the solution for many men is to withdraw to some place they feel that's safe, that's quiet, that's peaceful. And everything that woman was hoping would be accomplished in it. Can I make just one other quick point here? And this is for single people. And so maybe you're married or whatever, and you, you were hearing this, and you're like, I hate that guy now, uh, or whatever it may be, or amen, brother, the men, you know, that kind of thing, or whatever. Uh, but this is a warning to single people. And that is, there are many single folks that become discontent with being single. I don't want to be single. I don't like being single. And are tempted to settle for anybody. You know, you're a female, I'll take you. You're a male, I'll take you. And they're tempted to settle for anyone. Be very, very careful to not trade what you perceive to be one unhappiness for another unhappiness. Be very careful with the spouse that you pursue. You want to find a godly woman, a godly husband in that particular individual, because otherwise, if you end up marrying the wrong person just because he or she is a person, you're going to be living up on the roof, and you're not going to be happy about it. Okay, let's move on. Verse 10, it says, uh, the soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. Uh, we know that all sin, the root of all sin, lies in a person's soul, their heart. Um, you know, the depths of who they really are as an in individual. Solomon says here uh, that the soul of the wicked desires evil. And notice, it is so driven toward evil that even his close neighbor, his relative, maybe even a next of kin, that he should have an affinity for, I should care for my neighbor, I know my neighbor, I want things to go well for my neighbor here, but this person is so driven toward evil that even his close friend will not receive mercy if showing mercy will keep him from getting that particular evil. Does that make sense? Did I explain it? There's a lot of words there. Alrighty? But because I so want this, I'll step over anybody I need to step over, even my close neighbor, in order to get it. Evil men desire evil things. And the root problem is the heart. And that's why we bring our hearts to the Lord. That's why we ask the Lord, search out my heart. Sin can continue to reign even in the life of a believer. If the believer isn't continually giving those things over to, to the Lord. Evil men desire to do evil things, even as righteous men should desire to do righteous things. And so we keep bringing our heart before the Lord and say, Lord, search out my heart. You can clean up your outward life and still have a pretty messed up heart. you got to keep bringing that heart to the Lord so that the Lord will change that from the inside out. Verse 11 says, when a scoffer is punished, the simple becomes wise. When a wise man is instructed, he gains knowledge. Now, very similar to something we learned in, in chapter 19, verse 25. It said, strike a scoffer, and the simple will learn prudence. You reprove a man of understanding, and he will gain knowledge. And again, so we see here that a scoffer, the scorner, the person who says, ah, don't tell me anything, that scoffer may never learn when they are disciplined, but others will. And so it's important that discipline is maintained in a society or in a family. 
And even if the person themselves isn't getting it, other people are observing. It says here that the simple are learning from the experience of the scoffer that is being punished. So even if the scoffer doesn't learn, others are learning. And they're making any necessary changes in their lives so that they don't end up in that place as well. A person can learn the hard way or they can learn from others that are learning the hard way. That's how I want to learn my lessons. I want you to go through it, all right? And then I'll learn lessons from you. And that's what we do with the pages of scripture too, right? We see uh, certainly there's teaching in scriptures, but then you have these narrative stories that also teach, these events that occurred in other people's lives that also teach. And we learn the valuable lessons from the difficulties that those individuals have gone through. It's wise. It's, it's wise to take a good lesson designed for somebody else. You know, their, their learning lesson, it's wise to learn from that ourselves. Verse 12, the righteous one observes the house of the wicked, and he throws the wicked down to ruin. Now, some versions capitalize the R and the uh, O, righteous one. And so the idea there is the understanding of the translator is that that is referring to the Lord here. Other versions don't tran capitalize it uh, and think of it as the, the follower of the Lord. But in either instance, whether it's actually referring to the Lord or it's referring to one of his followers there, either instance, what we see, what we take notice of is that the Lord keeps close watch on the affairs of men and that he observes the house of the wicked. And as men and women that are seeking to live for God, one of the challenges sometimes is to see the perceived advancement of the wicked. And so here I'm trying to live for God. I'm trying to be honest here. And this guy's lying all the time, but yet he's getting ahead. I'm trying to do the right thing, and I seem to be falling back. Or I seem to be dealing now with the consequences because I was honest in the situation. But everybody else was lying about it here. And the psalmist Asaph, and we're going to turn there. Please turn to Psalm 73. So it's to your left, just a book before. Seven, chapter 73. And this is one of the psalmists that wrote a number of the psalms. David wrote the most of them, but other men did as well. And Asaph here is confessing his tendency to see the wicked get ahead and his question, God, where are you? Am I following the right path? Should I be trying to honor you? It doesn't seem to work and things like that. So I'm going to start in verse 3. Read along. It says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs, no difficulties until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. I don't know how that works, um, but it's one or the other, I guess. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. I hate when people strut, um, especially, never mind. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Can you picture someone in your mind? Somebody that has sort of gotten ahead and you just don't feel it's fair 
Look at that. They're a louse of an individual, and they cheat everybody. But look how far, look how proud they are. Look how arrogant they are, and so on and so forth. You can picture people in your mind. And Asaph is being swayed by this. His heart is moved by this seemingly unfair situation. But then notice how he reminds himself of truth. It's always good to do that, to remind ourselves of truth. To not allow our minds to go someplace that is not true, but to bring it back to the anchor of God's word and to remind ourselves of truth. And he does. And in verse 16, he says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Until I took some time alone with the Lord in my prayer closet. Until I had a quiet time sitting in my favorite chair one morning when I woke up. And then I considered their end, he says. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantom. Until he saw everything in perspective, uh, until he went into that sanctuary, then he was able to put everything into perspective. And that's really Solomon's point here in verse 12. It says, The righteous one observes the house of the wicked, and he throws the wicked down to ruin. I can't get out of my mind. There was, you remember Omar Gaddafi? I think that was, Momar, I think his name, Gaddafi. He was, uh, did I say it wrong? Okay, Gaddafi. We'll go with that. Uh, He was a leader of Libya for a while, um, like 30-some years, 40 years or whatever. Uh, essentially a dictator in his land uh, and had it made in so many ways, palaces and everything and servants and everyone did this thing or that thing. And then during that Arab spring that occurred a number of years back, he was one of the leaders that fell. And there's a video, I guess somebody with a cell phone or something like that, uh, of he, he went into hiding and he was in some like hole somewhere or whatever and trying to mask what he looked like. And his own people, they came and they captured him and they dragged him out of that. And they, they essentially just beat the man and murdered the man. Uh, they stabbed him hundreds of times, or whatever it may be, as they beat him. And it was almost sad to see. You know, here is, he was an awful man. He did awful things on the earth. Uh, we all know that. We can read our history books and, and see the types of things he did to his people and to other people. And yet to see him in that state, where his own people are just killing him as they were, this helpless man that is lying there. It caused me to pity the poor guy. And I think that's what Solomon's getting at. And so Solomon is saying here, Asaph is saying here, look, you look at this and you see this guy getting ahead and it's not fair and it's not right. Maybe I should cheat people. What is the end of that individual? What is the end of that individual? And rather than envying that person and the life that they seem to have here on the earth, we should pity the wicked. Solomon reminds us of this truth because we know that unless repentance comes, there is a certain expectation of judgment. Despite the fact that their life here on this earth may not appear to be that case, we know the reality of that truth. We go into the sanctuary of the Lord and it puts things into perspective. The righteous one observes the house of the wicked. The Lord sees. The Lord knows. The day of judgment will come for all on the earth. And unless an individual gets right with Christ, a certain judgment 
will be theirs. And for that, we pity those individuals. We pray for those individuals that someone may come into their lives to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 13 says, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Now, back in chapter 19, Solomon, he pointed out that the Lord sees those that are generous to the poor. And so we talked about that in verse, chapter 19, verse 17. Again, it says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. And boy, if you could lend to the Lord and he owes you something back, that's a good guy to owe something to. And it says he will repay him for his deed. Now here we see the opposite is also true. Because here we see that the person that closes their ear to the poor that the Lord takes notice of that as well. Again, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. And so even as the Lord will repay the one who shows kindness to the poor, here he will repay the one that refuses to show kindness to the poor. Again, whoever closes their ear to the poor when they cry out will find the Lord's ear is closed to them when they cry out. James in the New Testament in his book, he says this, for judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. And again, the Lord cares about the needs of those that are truly needy. And you should as well. We should as well. Verse 14, a gift in secret averts anger and a concealed bribe strong wrath. Now, as we've seen a number of times in Proverbs and other places, sometimes the Bible reports facts without necessarily approving of them. And so there's no statement in here that says, and that's wrong, or or something like that. Hopefully you understand that that is wrong, that any gift that is given to pervert justice is wrong, and it should never be offered, and it should never be received. And it's no wonder that such a bribe has to be kept close to the vest, that it has to be kind of hidden there. Because people even know that it's uh, something that should be ashamed of or something that they will get caught for and punished for. A gift gift in secret averts anger and a concealed bribe, uh, bribe strong wrath. It is not right. You should not do it. You should not receive it. Verse 15, when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but it is a terror to evildoers. Isn't that interesting that the same decision could lead to two different, completely different responses. So justice in a society is a joy to those that are walking in righteousness, or at the very least are following the laws. Justice in a society is a joy to those that are walking in righteousness because those decisions, they promote stability in society. They promote order and equity in a society. And so those that are seeking to walk in them rejoice when justice takes place on the earth. It is a pleasure for good men to see justice administered by the government that they live under. Now, at the same time, it's a terror for the wicked because the wicked perpetually live in fear that their deeds will catch up with them. And when justice is finally executed, if it's on another person, the fear is that my day is coming too. And certainly if it's on them, the fear is that now I'm going to be held accountable for my actions. That's a pretty stressful way to live life, isn't it? Always thinking you're going to get caught for that thing that you did. It's certainly not very peaceful and tranquil. And so we want to be those that walk in righteousness. Verse 16, it says, One who wanders from the way of good sense will rest in the assembly of the dead. 
the Bible are the ways of life. We know that to be the case. And when we stray away from the teaching of the scripture, we open ourselves up to the peril that is promised in the scripture. And so the Bible has been clear. Our study has been, this is the way of wisdom. Walk in these ways, you'll experience these blessings. This is the way of folly. Walk in these ways, these are the consequences that you're going to experience. And remember, the Lord desires life for us. The Lord desires good for us. The Lord desperately wants us to walk on this particular path and head toward the blessings that he promised will be found on that particular path here. And we ignore his instructions and when we do so, all we do is bring ourselves difficulty, destruction, and ultimately even death here. And so we see one who wanders from the way of good sense will rest in the assembly of the dead. Do yourself a favor and walk in the ways of God. And you'll experience the blessing for doing so. Verse 17, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. The idea there of pleasure is connected with the wine. The idea there of the oil, not so much the black oil or Texas gold or tea or whatever it is uh, from that, that wonderful TV program uh, that I think won a lot of awards. Beverly Hillbillies for the young people. Uh, but the idea of the oil is the olive oil, and it was a mark of wealth. And so you have this idea of pleasure and this idea of wealth. There's a place for those things. There's a place for taking it easy, and we're going to go to a great adventure with the family, and we're just going to have a good time. We're going to spend some time at the beach or whatever it may be, or the mountains for you weird people that like to go to the mountains uh, and things like that. There's a place for that. There's a place for wealth and to possess certain things and so on. But when one falls in love with those things, they set themselves up for a crash. Pleasure and luxurious living, they, tr they drain a person of financial resources. So if you're always out running around and seeking after these pleasures, your bank account keeps dwindling down and down and down and down. I remember when I was uh, going into my senior year of high school, I worked a job, I worked at the farm, I, I've told you before, and I just worked all the time. And so I made all kinds of money for a kid, you know, I made all kinds of money, my bank account was big, I had like $2,000 in my bank account. Then school started, I was playing sports and things like that, and I had a girlfriend. And what happened to my bank account? It went down. You know who that girl was? It was that one right there. It was her. She took all my money at movies and dinner and, and things like that here. So seeking these pleasures, those things cost money. And you got to pay that money so they can drain a person. If it becomes so encompassing to you, it drains a person of financial resources. Even so, it drains a person of spiritual resources. And so you do it long enough, it'll drain your bank account, all your financial resources, and leave you in poverty. You do it long enough, it'll drain all your spiritual resources and leave you in a place of spiritual poverty. And so the wise individual, it approaches pleasure, and wealth, it approaches those things in frugality, with moderation, and with wisdom. And that's Solomon's silent exhortation to us. Verse 18, the wicked is a ransom for the unrighteous and the traitor for the upright. Now, I, I would never say this about the Bible. I'm going to say it right now. This verse is both true and untrue. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Oh, boy, people are leaving. All right, I'll explain. It's true in every instance except one. Again, the verse says, the wicked is the ransom for the righteous and the traitor for the upright. It's true 
in that justice demands the punishment of the guilty. And as we saw earlier, such justice will bring joy to the righteous. And so when there's uh, justice in society, those that are following the laws rejoice in that. Good. Things are coming even in the way that things should be. The wicked, they're the troublers of society, and they ought to be punished for causing that trouble. And so in that sense, they are the ransom for the righteous. They're punished so that the righteous can live free and safely and so on. So in that way, it's true. Now, this verse is not true in one instance, and that is in the instance of how it pertains to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because again, the verse says, the wicked is a ransom for the righteous. In the case of Jesus Christ, the righteous, capital R, is ransomed for the wicked. And the upright gives his life on behalf of the traitor. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, it begins there. It begins with the sacrifice of Christ on the cross of Calvary, where the righteous one paid your penalty so that you, the wicked one, might have your sins forgiven. He became your ransom. Verse 19 continues, it says, It's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Remember Solomon said, or I've said before uh, about Solomon, is those things that he emphasizes again and again are the things we really need to learn. And so let's read it again here. It's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. I'm kidding a little bit, but not really. Uh, no, just a little. <laughs> but same idea again as verse 9. And so again, we take notice, it's better to have no company than to have bad company, uh, is how many people live their lives. It's just the reality of things. And this guy feels it's better to take up residence in the discomfort and the elements of the desert than to reside with someone that is quarrelsome and contentious. And so what is our, our, just our quick takeaway? May it never be said of us that we are such a person, that we're argumentative and quarrelsome, and we're always having to prove that our way is the right way in those things. Don't be that type of person. Nobody wants to be around you. And again, it's a mark of the flesh, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 20, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. It's really, in many ways, a continuation of verse 17. Because back in verse 17, we saw that the fool gave themselves entirely to pleasures, gave themselves entirely to luxurious living, and in doing so, they became impoverished for, for those pursuits. Here, though, we see kind of some balance to this idea of pursuing pleasures and luxurious living or wealth or what have you here. Because here what we see is that the wise man has plenty of those things. And so back in verse 17, the fool, that's all they were pursuing. That's all they were going after. Their heart was in love with those particular things. And here now we see the wise man has those things. It says he has precious treasure in his place of dwelling. It says he has oil in those particular things here. The difference is that this wise man who has a plenty of things here took his time in inquiring, acquiring these things. And I draw that conclusion based on the converse in the verse, which says, but a foolish man devours it. So the wise individual takes their time in acquiring these things. They plan where their money is going to go. They establish for themselves a budget. And in that budget, they throw in, this will be our fun money. And we go, you know, we're going to do something with the family or, you know, just the wife and I, we're going to go out and we're going to do this kind of thing. They budget those things. And then they also budget savings. 
and planning for the future. They sign up, they take Financial Peace University, and they make sure that they are where they need to be with their finances, with their money here. But notice what it says of the fool. Essentially, it says they just burn right through their money. And so they get it and they spend it, and they get it and they spend it, and they get it and they spend it. And they never think forward to the day when, you know what, there's going to come a day where I won't be able to get it as readily as I'm able to get it now. I'm going to be older, or I'm going to be retired, or I'm going to lose that job and have to work a lesser paying job. And so the fool just burns through their money, and they set themselves up for poverty, essentially, or for the difficulty that comes with those bad decisions here. And so this idea of wisdom, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling. Finally, verse 21, it says, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness and honor. Now, often we hear, and I could even say, you finished my word for me, the pursuit of, that's what we oftentimes hear, uh, certainly from our uh, Declaration of Independence and the, TV, the movie that was out a little while ago with uh, Will Smith uh, and other things. And so this idea of a pursuit of happiness in a society is often given as a key mark of freedom. If you can have a society where people can pursue, among other things, happiness, Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, those things. Well, now you have a society that is marked by freedom. And the thinking then is this, that if a people are free to pursue, not at the expense of others necessarily, but if they're able to pursue that which brings them peace and joy and happiness, well, then that is a people that are truly free. Now, there's some truth in that idea. Again, our nation was founded on that principle. I think, sadly, our nation, as we're growing to discover, has moved in a direction where the happiness, the pursuit of happiness, neglects righteousness. And so what makes me happy, I'm going to do what I want to do and go any direction I want to go, and so on and so forth. And they are now ultimately discovering that such a pursuit of happiness without righteousness never leads to what a person truly desires. Because what do people truly desire? Peace, satisfaction, they want abundant life. They want to live life to the fullest here on the earth. And the scripture tells us how that is attained. It tells us how life is attained, both abundant life and everlasting life. And so Solomon then, we'd be wise to learn his lesson. It's not just about whatever makes you happy, go ahead and go do it. And then, boy, you'll really be living. That's not, certainly not what Solomon thinks here. Solomon says, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness finds life. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness finds life. I find it interesting. They pursue righteousness, mercy with other people, but notice what they end up. Pursuing righteousness, not only do they get righteousness, but they get life and honor as well. Not a bad deal, is it? The way to have a successful life and true happiness is to hold righteousness and kindness or mercy in balance in our lives. And we do that when we walk in righteousness ourselves and we show mercy to everyone else that is around us. And when a person steadily pursues righteousness and loving kindness, the end result is ultimately what all men desire, a satisfied life and the honor of God and other people. But it begins with by pursuing righteousness in the ways of God and walking in the ways of God. Such is the life that the Lord honors, and many others do as well. Many human beings that are observing see that and honor that as well. And such is the life that the Lord blesses. And so may I encourage you, pursue righteousness 
pursue rightness with God. Take that time every day to get your heart right with the Lord by sitting in his presence, allowing him to speak truth into your heart through the word of God and through prayer and respond as he puts leadings on your heart. If he tells you to confess something, confess something. He tells you to do something, go and do that particular thing. And you do that and you establish that track record, you're going to have that straight path that you're going to look back and say, I lived a life of peace and tranquility with God. I'm satisfied with the life that I lived. I lived a life of abundance as the Lord designed. Amen, good friends? I think that's what the Lord would have for us. Let's pray. Father, we delight in that wonderful truth. And Lord, we thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit to speak into our hearts. Lord, uh, as we, we read there in Isaiah, this is the way walk ye in. That little whisper uh, coming from behind that just tells us the way that we, to go, we are to go. And you've given us your Holy Spirit as a down payment of heaven. He's our teacher. He comes alongside of us. He ministers truth. Lord, you've given us our, the word of God, which we know to be true, that we can walk ye therein. And so, Lord, I pray you would give us a greater hunger to know you. Lord, to hear your voice, to walk according to it, to be in fellowship with you and with others that are around us, and to show kindness and mercy, even as we have been shown much mercy. And so, Lord, bless your word this morning. Use it in our lives as we go from this place. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.